Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Utilitarian bioethics. Bioethicist Charles C. Camosi is a breath of fresh air who advocates tirelessly for people with disabilities, the elderly, and the medically vulnerable. He is an author and associate professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University. His book, Resisting Throwaway Culture, won first place from the Catholic Publishers Association as Resource of the Year. His latest book, is Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality, which we will be talking about today. Charles, welcome to Humanize. Hi, Wesley. It's good to be with you, particularly on a topic like this one. How did you get into this mess? What attracted you to bioethics? Well, I think it can go all the way back. I mean, in some ways, it goes all the way back to my education. I was educated by Catholic nuns, as many of us were back in the day, and They really didn't shrink from telling us the truth about what was happening. And whether it was the beginning of life or end of life, um, the kind of education I received has stuck with me. It's been tattooed on my brain in a certain way. But um, I went on to study philosophy of religion, actually, not ethics, and was trying to find my faith in that and was not able to, actually. Um, Ended up with a master's degree and kind of looked around and said, what should I do? I guess I'll teach high school. And it was actually teaching um, medical ethics to high school juniors, a Catholic high school in Waukesha, Wisconsin, where I kind of woke up and said, this is where my passion lies. The kind of education I'd received in, in elementary school never left me. And I thought, this is where the intersection of my religious beliefs and my passion for ethics and especially medical ethics took off. So I eventually did a PhD at, at Notre Dame in Christian ethics, focusing in bioethics and got the job at Fordham was off and running. Did you realize that you were going to end up uh, more or less being a national figure uh, seeking to promote what you consider to be a proper bioethics? No, (laughs) no. In fact, uh, I can very clearly remember sitting in the office of one of my professors at Notre Dame, Michael Baxter, um, and saying, you know, I really loved teaching high school. I was also the pro-life moderator and basketball coach with the JV team. And there was just a close tight knit community that I loved and, still miss, frankly. Uh, And I thought maybe after the PhD, I'll just go back there and teach high school. And, uh, and actually, to be honest with you, as I see my students come into college, I really think maybe the battleground is high school, because a lot of the students that come into my classes are so ideologically opposed, it's very difficult for them to even hear what I'm what I'm trying to get them to at least even consider. So um, go into that a little uh, in, into that a little further. You're at Fordham, which is a Catholic university, and you're saying that, and of course, not exclusively uh, to Catholics, but you're saying that your students are coming into your class already with an ethic formed on these particular uh, moral issues. Yes, and in a certain sense, they always were. I, this is my thirteenth. I finished up my thirteenth year this academic year, this past year. And, you know, from day one, it was very clearly the case that my students were kind of nominally pro-choice or nominally kind of anti whatever a traditional Christian ethic might be on these questions. But they were at least open to hearing arguments and open to seeing evidence that they hadn't considered. Um, Now, though there are some students like that, a, a much higher proportion of them are even refused to engage, um, the arguments and evidence that they disagree with. Some do, 
I think in part because they know their grade is dependent on it. I insist that all my students, regardless of their views, engage with counter arguments as an essential part of what it means to do an academic project, do academic work. But more, far more than even five or six years ago, my students, something has happened to them at a previous moment in their life where they're just not as open to even considering, you know, back in the day, you know, 10, 12 years ago, they would jump at the chance to kind of wrestle with views they disagreed with and get into a good old fashioned argument or debate. Now it's, it's much more like uh, the power is functioning here. We don't even need to consider these points of view and even considering them as problematic. So that's a major shift. So there's a major thing that needs to happen somewhere before they get to me, whether that's high school or junior high school or even elementary school, as I mentioned before, the way I was formed. Um, so I don't, I don't begrudge those teachers at all. And in some ways they're doing more important work than the work I'm doing. That's, that's really frightening and it's beyond our scope today, but I think it goes along with what we are seeing um, in general uh, throughout society that uh, there is a lack, a loss of liberalism, if you will, to use that term, that believes in academic freedom, believes in the give and take of debate. And now there's more of an ideological desire to impose almost a cultural hegemony uh, on society. Yes, and especially when... Um you know, folks that have a certain point of view feel like they have the power to impose that point of view onto others. When they don't have the power to impose it, we still hear a lot of calls for liberalism and open-mindedness and free inquiry, especially in the Christian churches. Um, but uh, yes, I totally agree. There's, there's, there, and it's frankly something that's being in in some circles embraced on the so-called right. I don't like the right-left binary, but. A lot of people who might identify as conservatives are are turning into kind of anti-liberals in a similar way. And though I can understand where that comes from, especially the desire to kind of punch back with equal power and force, um, I, I still am committed to those kind of liberal values, academic values, um, marshalling the arguments, finding the evidence and going forward. Let's get back to bioethics. Why is that field, bioethics, such an important field and, and discipline for non-professionals to understand? Well, it's the intersection in many ways of life and death. Fundamental human value um, matters in medicine and bioethics at a level that it really doesn't in many, many other circumstances. I guess maybe if you think about the military or policing or some other area where life and death is on the line, um, that, that is at least in the same ballpark. But there's nothing like medicine for and healthcare for thinking about these fundamental questions of life and death, the, the margins of life or death, who can take it, who can't, who counts as one of us, who doesn't count as one of us. So some of the debates are pretty academic, um, but I think you and I try to do work that both does justice to the academic side of these debates, but also opening them up to broader publics, broader um, uh, audiences, so that those who have a, a vested interest in who counts as us or as one of us and who does not count as one of us or who can kill and who is not, who is forbidden from killing um, can, can, so they can really enter those debates and see what's at stake in some of these questions and frankly, know what's going on. That's one of the reasons I love reading your work is because some, I mean, half the time I get an email from you, the last email from you, what you've written most recently, I say, well, I had no idea that was even happening. So uh, this is, this is essential work. It seems to me straddling the, straddling the audiences of the academic and the, and the, and the more popular. Yeah, I, I, I'm very passionate about getting it into the popular sphere uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there's an awful lot at stake for people uh, in these issues, in these debates, particularly people uh, who are at the margins, as we'll discuss, and, and you certainly bring up in your book. But secondly, um, I really worry that right now the ivory tower, if you will, the intelligentsia are lost and if we're going to be able to maintain a uh, what I consider to be a moral or ethical healthcare field and, and indeed culture, we're going to have to engage what I call Main Street. That is, get average people, real people to understand that both they have a stake in this and they have a right to an opinion. That seems profoundly correct to me. And one of the reasons why academia, and of course, it's, it's dangerous to just paint it with a huge broad brush, but in general is in the situation it's in is because power functions a certain way in academia that doesn't function on main street. So there's actually much more plurality. There's much more open-mindedness. There's much more commitment actually to arguments and evidence in the average Joe on the street 
um, or your neighbor or your, your uh, fellow parishioner or whoever we're talking about here, um, then there is an academia because there's a kind of enforced orthodoxy that doesn't allow certain opinions uh, to really flourish. So you would counterintuitively, um, the kind of audiences um, that you're talking about are better able to hear maybe a plurality of opinion, different set of opinions, and maybe even academics are, at least today, in, in many circumstances. And, and perhaps they still have that old idea of the a liberal view of, uh, you know, reasonable people can differ. That's right. Yes. Uh, your book, Losing Our Dignity, makes a powerful point that healthcare is leading to a devolution of Western values, uh, that it is uh, moving away from e the equality of life ethic and toward an invidious system that devalues the weak, vulnerable, and elderly. I want to read what you write. Uh, Over the last half century, something has changed. Contemporary Western culture has surrendered this deeply theological legacy, which is human equality, more generally, but the surrender is especially advanced in a secularized and even irreligious understanding of medicine and healthcare. This has put fundamental human equality at risk. Indeed, if we continue on our current path, if we cannot find a way to recover this legacy, the idea of fundamental human equality may simply die out. This damage, the damage already done, has had disastrous consequences for some of the most vulnerable human beings among us. I, I totally agree with that, but, but th that does raise a certain question. Are you saying uh, that the only way to uh, promote this idea of human equality is through a theological understanding? I guess I'd, I'd offer a qualified yes to that question, um, not to be too professorial about it. But on the side of just an average yes, I think we just have to admit that since we've abandoned the theological ideal, right, the idea that what makes us equal is that we share a common human nature that reflects the divine image. Since we've abandoned that, we've turned to, um, you know, actualized traits as morally um, significant. So autonomy, rationality, self-awareness, will, productivity, these things are what we've substituted in its place. And it's just manifestly the case that if that's what we use, many human beings don't have those in equal measure and many uh, don't seem to have them at all. Yeah, let me push back on that a little bit. First, a lot of these values that you're promoting and, and that I certainly agree with really uh, almost uh, originated in the Hippocratic Oath, which comes 500 years or so before the Christian era, uh, in which uh, you, when you read the oath, it's quite remarkable. I mean, there is the concept of universal human equality in the oath because this pagan doctor uh, who wrote the oath or the the school of medicine back then that, that created the oath, said that the master and the slave are to be treated equally by the physician. That, to me, is quite a radical notion for that era, and even up until uh, the last hundred or so years. So it strikes me that there is a way forward um, beyond the theological to, to promote human equality. Yeah, I mean, that's a helpful pushback, but I wonder what you think about this. So you could make a case, and I think you should make a case, that the slave uh, in that circumstance that you give us um, is, on a certain sense, you know, autonomous, rational, self-aware, has a will, uh, productive. But it's pretty clear that in that era, they were consistent for human beings that didn't have those those qualities. So one of the as I suspect you know, one of the major things the early Christian church did in pushing back against pagan Greece and Rome was to push back against not only abortion, but infanticide. And there was no distinction, in fact, in the ancient Greek and Roman world between abortion and infanticide. They were essentially considered the same kind of act. And the Didache, which indicates how the early church responded to that, was, was pretty clear that you should not commit <laughs> abortion or infanticide for exactly the same reason the fundamental human equality of those individuals. Uh, but the Hippocratic Oath may not bring up infanticide, but it certainly brings up abortion. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair too. So you have to wonder like at what, what uh, level would you say, um, you know, the Hippocratic Oath is indicative of the surrounding culture. If abortion and infanticide were rampant, were, were the followers of Hippocrates and his students, you know, some kind of radicals that 
didn't really follow the culture on these questions or, you know, were they, or were they, was there somehow the basis for this in their, um, you know, in their, uh, in, in their worldview. Now I will say, um, you sound like someone that knows the Hippocratic Oath pretty well. You probably know that then it's a prayer, right? It's a prayer to pagan gods. And I think goddesses too. I think that's the way it opens actually. And, or it's a, or it's a kind of like oath to the gods. Um, so even that is interesting to explore, right? So I, I actually don't necessarily think that um, what the ar- the argument I'm making is explicitly, though I think in our context, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of the people of the book, the uh, Christians, Jews, and Muslims who are who really are defenders of the kind of sub, uh, view of human equality that is, you know, driving what I'm up to. My my basic point is really, you know, there's there's a chief love, there's a there's a metaphysical understanding that's at least implicitly religious about fundamental human equality that is, that we've lost. And so I'm I in the book I'm really kind of pushing for us to to embrace a particular metaphysical view of the human person that that allows us. But I take your point that there are others as well. Yeah, for example, uh, Nat Hentoff, uh, the very well known civil libertarian. Uh, a late friend of mine, um, and an atheist, uh, was very uh, adamant about uh, standing up for human equality in healthcare. He And in fact, he won the um, Human Life Foundation's Great Defender of Life because of his pro-life work. He also sacrificed quite a bit because he was, in essence, fired uh, from the Village Voice where he'd worked for decades, uh, lost his Washington Post column and so forth because he stood up for those kinds of values. And and he and I became friends because of uh, my work against assisted suicide. And he started using me as a source, and then eventually we became good buddies. Um, and, and he uh, he brought something up that I think is important. And I'm not I'm just trying to add to our conversation, not detract from what you're saying. But but human equality. Is the uh, still the lingua franca of the West? That is, we believe in universal human rights and equal va- and equal rights. Because of that, we still have the lexicon and the a- ethos, if you will, for equality. That I think, and I certainly hope, can ground the kind of uh, bioethics you're talking about, even for people who may not have a theological concept. Yeah, and. For those who read to the end of the book, I do. Well, first of all, I acknowledge up front in the beginning of the book that that, and that's a that's why I chose the title I did for the book. Fundamental human equality is something you can appeal to still, um, and have folks who disagree with us about some of these issues um, have their ears perk up and and engage their interest because we are still committed to it. However, I think there's an interesting question to ask about: to what extent we're kind of running on fumes here? And don't have a lot of gas left in the tank, as it were, for something like this. Um, you know, if we've undercut the theological basis for this, um, there sure there are a, 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 there are some really influential and good people who aren't believers who who uphold um, who uphold this point of view. But they're few and far between. At the end of the book, I talk about um, a kind of medium term goal for pushing back against this would be a kind of di- trying to form a dialogue where we do talk about overlapping consensus on these questions. And we do engage people of different religions and of no faith at all. And I even talk about, you know, there are this, these strange creatures out there like who are secular Aristotelians who believe in a, in a um, body soul kind of um, relationship, uh, you know, a hylomorphic relationship where we say it's, it's the kind of creature you are. It's the metaphysical appeal to the kind of creature you are rather than these actualized traits. But the kind of people I'm talking about are pretty few and far between. And, um, you know, I think our our best hope actually is for a revival of more traditional religious belief among the people of the book than it is about um, kind of invoking a secular Aristotelianism or the like. Hopefully you're wrong, but <laughs> we'll, find, we'll, we'll find out. You make a point in the book, and, and I've certainly written about this, 
that many in bioethics today have have moved away from human exceptionalism, which is the term I use, but turned away from the idea that human life matters because it's human, and rather that they uh, create a might be called um, universal person rights. That is what what counts is personhood having certain capacities, the ability to be self-aware over time or the ability to appreciate uh, their own life. Um, what is the danger of this concept of personhood in your view? Well, especially when it's connected to a kind of, um, you must have actualized trait X in order to matter view of the person. Of its very nature, and sometimes by design, it is attempting to throw away or discard a population from the circle of protection that equality affords us. So, and I actually, I think this was kind of read back into a, um, into a set of moves that were made, uh, you know, 50 years ago with brain death. So when, when uh, the Harvard brain death commission got together and said, Hey, guess what? We got all these, um, people quote unquote who are on uh, ventilators which had just recently been invented and we have this need for um you know organs uh in the for organ vital organ transplant which also had recently been uh developed um i don't think there was actually much thought uh metaphysical thought in fact i know there wasn't a whole lot of metaphysical thought into like what is a person and what is the distinction between that as a human being they just wanted more organs and they didn't think these lives mattered and so that then something else was read back into it well you know these aren't rational self-aware autonomous willful um productive members of society so um we're going to shift our and i think that was the fundamental shift and i know you may disagree with me about that but peter singer and i both agree um <laughs> that uh that this is the shift now i think he, he thinks it's a great shift i think it's a horrific shift but i but we both agree that this was the copernican revolution where we where we, we moved away from the living human being as the center of moral value. And we moved to these other traits, again, trait X counting for as person's view. But again, I think it was done not necessarily because of a conscious shift in the culture about personhood. I think that was read back in as kind of like an ex post facto way of looking back and saying, well, this was why we did it. It wasn't just kind of, we, we just wanted more organs. So we made up a story about why we could take them. Um, and then as a result, we've kind of applied that view more consistently over time. So in your view, and, and I don't totally agree with that because I do believe that brain dead properly diagnosed is brain dead. And I would also point out, so does the Catholic church for what that's worth. Um, well, I'm a Catholic theologian. We, we could have a nice discussion about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do think that that did light a fire that some people then said, well, if we can do that for people who with medical intervention are still breathing because a truly brain dead person or person declared dead by neurological criteria is the proper term. Brain dead is a, a popular uh, a term. Um, and they would stop immediately breathing if they're truly uh, dead by neurological criteria because there would be no impetus for the diaphragm to work. But they said, uh, well, if, if we could do that, then let's start now moving next. And you make this point in your book uh, towards the people with persistent unconsciousness. I don't like to use the term persistent vegetative state. Yeah, I don't, that's great. I, I totally uh, deny that any human being is a vegetable. None of us are rutabagas. Uh, and and we shouldn't use denigrating terms, particularly when it comes to uh, healthcare diagnosis. But it, there's no question, and you bring up the Terry Schiavo case, which I was deeply involved in. And and uh, in an earlier episode of Humanize, we interviewed uh, Bobby Schindler, uh, Terry Schiavo's brother. But that case did kind of create a cultural, popular acceptance of the idea that we can throw people with severe cognitive incapacities out of the lifeboat. Do you agree with that? Oh, very much so. And I mean, that was, I think what got into the popular imagination and we started to think about the, even the possibility of saying as, um, Terry Schiavo's husband put on her gravestone that she departed this earth in 1990, but was at peace in 2005, that kind of radical dualistic view of the person again, related to this thing that you got to have these actualized traits. Otherwise you don't count. Otherwise you've departed 
even though there's a living human body that listens to music and has sleep wake cycles and responds to different light and sound. Um, but, but again, yeah, yeah, there's no question that Terry Schiavo was not brain dead. Some of the popular media used that term about her, but she was a, uh, a, uh, cognitively disabled woman who did not need like kidney dialysis or anything of that sort. And who was dehydrated to death over two weeks if you did that to Osama bin Laden, it would be called a war crime. If you did that to a dog, it would be considered terrible animal abuse and you could go to jail. But doing it to a human being who's helpless and vulnerable, and particularly a human being where the family was saying, let us care for her, uh, uh, was just deemed medical ethics. How, how did we get to that spot? Well, that's exactly right. And I mean, the only way we can get away with it and get, get to that spot is if we say that Terry Shiva was no longer there, that she had, quote, departed this earth, which is what her husband not accidentally, not unrelatedly put on the grave, her gravestone as a way of kind of absolving himself from what he had pushed for. The only way you can say that that's legitimate is if Terry is not there. Um, but where do we get that idea? Uh, and again, it sounds like maybe we disagree about this, though I, I think... I, I really benefited from your um, highlighting the fact that at least in some of the literature now, some people are arguing that Terry or that um, people like Jahai McMath who were declared brain dead were not in fact brain dead. Um, though it's not clear to me how these words are being used. There seem to be a lot of, you know, kind of slippery use of the words and the, the right. categories. Um, but at least one uh, journal um, that again, you're, you helpfully pointed to in a national review corner piece, I think um said, well, it turns out that Jahai McMath was not brain dead. And I think he calls it unresponsive, unawoke state or something like that. Makes up a neologism to describe it. But I got to tell you, and I, I hammered this point in the book, Jahai McMath's medical team in California, the little African-American girl who was declared brain dead and then moved to New Jersey because that's the only place that she could go that offered her family the religious freedom to take care of her. Um, they pounded their fist on the desk and said, she's dead, dead, dead. What do you guys not understand about that? Even when people would show videos of her appearing to move her foot on command or some other set of evidence that is difficult to explain. If it would be easier to explain if it was just kind of random, but on command seems, seems odd. So uh, again, I, now I, you could just say, well, it turns out she wasn't brain dead, but they do this with persistent vegetative state too, as you know. So they did a study on a cohort of people who are in a so-called persistent or permanent vegetative state and found that 30% of them, 30 to 40% of them actually could respond to questions, yes or no questions, by asking, you know, if the answer to my question is yes, imagine you're playing tennis. If the answer to the question is no, imagine you're reading in your room. 30 to 40% were able to answer the questions correctly. Now, how did the folks who believe in persistent vegetative state respond to that? I said, well, these 30, 40% weren't actually in persistent vegetative state, it turns out. And so I feel like something similar is going on with, with so-called brain death, right? It turns out, well, Jahai McMath, it turns out she wasn't brain death, even though her medical team pounded on the desk in the face of her African-American family and said she's dead, dead, dead. So I, I guess I'm just so, somewhat cynical about all of this. I don't think, I think the, the medical intelligentsia, the people writing the articles and the medical teams are kind of slippery with the language to get the outcomes they want without really being precise about what's, what's actually going on here. I won't disagree with that aspect at all. <laughs> and and by the way, I uh, was honored to uh, actually visit Jahai in New Jersey. And uh, she did uh, actually do something voluntary, volitional, that I watched upon request. It took her a minute uh, to put her thumb and uh, forefinger together, but she did it. And it was not a jerking movement. It was a, a um, deliberate and... Um, uh, intentional, obviously, effort. And I almost came out of my shoes uh, and convinced me that whatever Jahai might have been, she wasn't dead. Now, think about that for a second. Even if we disagree about the ultimate, um, you know, judgment about brain death, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have been put into this category. I mean, think about the certainty with which Jahai's medical team was willing to say, again, pounding the table, being so disrespectful to the family. Um, I mean, the bioethicists writing about Jahai after she was moved to New Jersey were so disrespectful. Arthur Kaplan yep. said that she's going to start decomposing. Um, somebody else, I forget who it was, said, uh, why would you want to animate a corpse? 
and yet you saw with your own eyes her respond to a command. So we can have, you know, the debate about like if we're really sure about this and if we do all the right brain imaging, if we get all the way down um, to the center of the brain and even the pituitary function, um, you know, what do we actually mean by brain death? That's important. But, but I think what we both agree on here is that the way the concept is being used right now is deeply problematic and has not just because we get it totally wrong, totally 100% wrong, like we did with Jahai, but, but that, you know, this, this has been a, these mistakes have been a springboard to other kinds of mistakes that, that lead to fundamental human inequality with a range of other issues as well. Right. And, and this idea of personhood in uh, the cynicism is well earned because back in the day, people were the bioethicists and so forth were saying, well, these people are actually uh, dead so we can, um, you know, have their organs uh, donated. And now many of the same type of people are saying, well, of course she, they're not really dead. So we can take organs from people we know are alive. And it, and it's all to move the process down the path to treating human beings as mere instrumentalities when they are not within the acceptable moral community as set forth by the power structure. And then you add fuel to that fire, the fuel being um, a lack of resources or at least a perceived lack of resources. It was certainly a real lack of resources with brain death and organ donation. Um, but I, a theme throughout my book, as you know, is that with each chapter, I, I focus not just on the intellectual or even social um, forces at work that are marginalizing human beings, but also the economic and the resource related questions. Because when at least there's a perceived shortage of resources, it's often the most vulnerable who get eliminated from fundamental human equality. Exactly. And just uh, to remind our listeners, we're talking with Charles C. Camosi. His book is Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality. And this is a book that I urge all my listeners to read uh, because it affects every one of us. My mother died of Alzheimer's disease in my home. Uh, we, my wife and I brought her into my home, our home for the last six, five, six months of her life. God bless you. I know what Alzheimer's disease is, and we're going to talk about that because the people with dementia are the next targets. But she did not lose the essence of who my mother was. She was still Leona Smith. And I take it very personally when people try to say, well, she was no longer a person or that uh, she had lost that uh, essential quality that made her equal with everyone else. Yeah, well, uh, totally agree, obviously, 100%. However, we're on a trajectory, and it sounds like you agree with me, um, uh, which puts that very judgment into serious question. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, and that's why people need to understand what's happening, because we can't rely on those who are, quote, our betters, close quote, with all the, the PhDs after their name and people who teach at the great universities, because they don't view the world the same way I hope most people in the country still do. So I look at secular bioethics, utilitarian bioethics, almost as imposing a foreign ideology on people uh, who don't necessarily agree with that kind of uh, 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 worldview. No, that's that's definitely the case. And we see that time and time again with a range of issues, especially the ones I focus on and losing our dignity. If you, if you pull people on these issues and you um, ask them about their educational background. It's so interesting to see how those with, you know, the so-called higher education end up with very distorted and even gross ableist views on these questions. You know, and those who are don't have as much of that education coming to a much more humane, fundamental human equality centered point of view. The thing I notice a lot in this discussion is uh, there's a lot of discussion on the importance of intelligence and, and that kind of thing. And I, I see a lot less discussion of the importance of love. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's not surprising. I mean, the, the one reason why privileged classes tend to uh, devalue vulnerable populations is for, for precisely that reason. It's hard for them to imagine their own lives as worth anything without, you know, their, their cognitive abilities, their level of intelligence. And so, I mean, that's one reason why physicians tend to um, underrate the um, value and the uh, so-called quality of life of their patients compared to the patients themselves. Time and time again, survey after survey finds that the physician of the patient 
rates the quality less than the patient does themselves, particularly when we're talking about a disabled patient and very much so when we're talking about profound disability. So you're totally right to point to a kind of um, view of the intelligentsia or the elite that is really at pains to say this is a kind of life that's valuable and this is not. Which kind of segues into the Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans cases in England. Uh, Tell our listeners uh, about those cases and why they matter. Well, I think maybe it's fair to say the United Kingdom is a little bit further along the path than we are here in the United States. Um, I have done, you know, semesters abroad, research at Oxford and other places, spent some time in the United Kingdom. And my very strong sense is that's the case. So it's not accidental then that we see cases like Alfie Evans and Charlie Gard and little Alta, who is now the latest example, it seems to me, of a toddler with a very severe um, catastrophic brain injury or disease where we said, you know, hey, guess what? It turns out if, if you don't have this, these kind of cognitive abilities, your life doesn't matter. It can't be a benefit to you. That's the reasoning that's often employed. And, and when folks apparently make religious freedom arguments, when families make religious freedom arguments, they say, well, even if we could, could consider little Alfie, little Charlie, little Alta, a Christian or a Jew, we don't think that that their religion matters to them because it can't matter because the only way it could matter is if the, they have these cognitive abilities that we consider to be important and, and, and moral, morally relevant. And so what's happened, as many of your listeners no doubt know, if they're listening to a podcast by you, is that the, they've been discarded. They've been thrown away. They've been said, they've, they've been told their lives don't matter because they can't be a benefit to them. And so any, any idea that we, we would have of the parents making a decision to treat them as if they have fundamental equality with the rest of us, that their lives matter exactly the same as the rest of us, um, is, is out the window to the point where they will even deny the family's ability to travel to other places, which will welcome them, which won't throw them away. In the case of Alfie Evans, Pope Francis had literally sent a jet to pick Alfie Evans and his family up and bring him back to Bamboo Jesu Hospital in Rome, where he would have received um, the appropriate care for someone in his situation. And so we are, we are, they are so adamant, they are so irreligious in their point of view and in their anthropology, their vision of the human person, that they won't even allow parents to take uh, their child to receive treatment in another country. They would, they consider it a kind of, they, I don't, <laughs> I try to give my interlocutors the benefit of the doubt, Wesley, but I, I, I can't believe that it's, it's an honest point of view when they say that they think this is the essentially a kind of child abuse to take Alfie Evans or Charlie Gard or little Alta to, to, to be cared for in another country. But that's the argument they make. They, they will actually call it a form of child abuse. I think it's also power oriented. That is, if Charlie's parents uh, uh, and Alfie's parents and Alta's parents were able to actually escape the clutches, if you will, of a uh, bureaucracy and a court system over there that, that has ruled it is in the best interest of a child to die when the parents still want to fight for that child's life and there are other doctors willing to care for that child. That becomes an issue of not only the particular cases in front of of the court or in front of, let's say, the hospital ethics committee, but it becomes an issue for other cases in the future and who will have the power to decide. That's right. And another thing that makes the UK more advanced in this regard, of course, is a is a different vision of the state in its relationship to the to the family and to the parents. The, they have a vision of the state and especially the courts as having the kind of power to take the autonomy away from families to make these decisions, the freedom of families based on their own vision of the good to make these calls, uh, for their, for their, for their little ones. And, and we can see that unfortunately now I'm, I'm no small government libertarian or anything like that, but I, I, I accept, um, the really important limits that we put on government in the United States. And insofar as we are moving in this direction, where we allow the state to impose its view of the human person onto families, onto others, um, you know, we could, maybe we're just, you know, a little bit behind the UK when it comes to these kinds of questions. Well, there's a case in Texas called Tinsley Adams, 
uh, which is very similar to Charlie Gard and to Alfie Evans. And this is a, a little baby uh, who's got a very serious uh, uh, diagnosed heart situation. The uh, I, I would note she's African-American. We see that quite a bit. And I would like to see a study of some of these so-called feudal care cases, as they're called, or inappropriate care. How often are these patients on Medicaid? Or how often are these patients people of color? Because it strikes me there's a real social justice component to this controversy. But in the Tinsley Adams situation, doctors said she had weeks to live. It was cruel and horrible that she was suffering terribly to keep her going. And they, um, in Texas, you can go to a uh, Doctors can take a case to a bioethics committee, and if a bioethics committee at the hospital says that this life-sustaining treatment should stop, the parents only have 10 days within which to find another location, and often these hospitals will honor each other's futility determinations. Um, It's now been a year and a half. Uh, Tinsley Adams is not dead. And there's a case uh, pending in the Texas courts, and and there's an injunction against removing her from life support with a real question about the constitutionality of that case. But that same um, agenda, power agenda, is present in the United States as well as in the United Kingdom. Yeah, so we can certainly find the, you know, the roots of what's already a f- fully flowering bush or tree in the United Kingdom here, here in the U S and maybe we're seeing more than just the roots. Maybe it's starting to grow in a way that's pretty disturbing here as well. I, I uh, really uh, was uh, um, impressed by your work during the early days of COVID when elderly people in the nursing homes were, were being sus- subjected to terrible neglect and maltreatment. And there you were on television, righteously, uh, almost uh, John Brown-like, only peaceful, (laughs) Uh, um, saying this is absolutely wrong. You are treating these people as lesser uh, human beings than other people. How did that come to your attention? And what do you think COVID brought out that uh, our listeners need to be aware of? Well, as somebody like you who's thought a lot about how we treat folks at the end of life more broadly, um, I guess I was already attuned in some ways, not always, but in some ways um, to how throwaway culture functioned. But as the early stages of the pandemic unfolded, as we decided to essentially treat nursing homes as dumping grounds for COVID patients in many states, I'll note that Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned as governor of New York uh, after lots of pressure, including pressure coming from how he treated nursing homes as COVID dumping grounds. It became more and more clear that um, not only our policies during the pandemic were treating this like treating this population like it was a throwaway population. But here's one of the if you can call it a silver lining of the pandemic um, that at least I see. This was already happening in dramatic ways, um, and you're one of the few people who help us understand what was happening. The early part of the, and I don't know if it's died down now, but the early part of the pandemic shone a spotlight on this fundamental injustice to our whole culture in a way like we've never seen it before. We were forced to kind of look at how we warehouse um, the elderly and those with dementia in what essentially are warehouses of death in many cases. And it got it, it shocked our con- many of our consciences and kind of said, well, wait a minute, is this this is what we do to our elderly? This is what we do to our parents and grandparents. This is what we do to our beloved disabled. And I guess I guess one thing that maybe is good about all of this is that throwaway culture, which thrives on the shadows, it thrives on using language which hides and distorts the reality of what's going on. This was all in our face, and it still is in our face. And so now we're without excuse. We we have been shown the ugliness with how we treat these populations, and we have a choice as a culture about how we want to respond to that. I, I, I was doing my best, as you said, to try to draw attention to it in my own ways. Um, but I'm hopeful that one of the things post-pandemic, you know, everyone talks about what, how things will be different. I hope one thing that's different is that we will fundamentally rethink warehousing our elderly and, and those with dementia in uh, in places where we just essentially over-medicate them and allow them to die. Um, but but that might be a kind of ivory tower professor's naive hope here. I don't know. You specifically wrote on page 148, and this hit me like a punch in the gut. You say, quote, 
the care that is offered, and you were talking about dementia patients, is not just inadequate, it is abusive. That is a powerful statement. And uh, how, how, I mean, it's, it's almost beyond belief that we would take our mothers and fathers, our brothers and sisters, and treat them in, in such a demeaning way that the people who care for them, that keep them clean, that keep them warm, are only paid, as you pointed out in the book, eight or nine dollars an hour when you can flip hamburgers for fifteen dollars an hour. It just makes me mad to hear you read these words and 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 make these important points because you're right. I mean, like we, you know, we often think about you know what will future generations think of our culture and what what are the gross injustices that we can't really see that future generations will hold us accountable for. And of course, we should talk about abortion. We should talk about lack of healthcare. We should talk about euthanasia. But I really think this, how we treat our elderly and those with dementia will be one of those things that we look back on. The culture, human beings look back on our culture and say, these people thought they were enlightened. Look what they were doing to the, some of the most vulnerable people among them. Um, they weren't enlightened. Right. You know, if you have money, you can get good care for an elderly loved one. Uh, but if you're if you're in a situation where you can't afford six, seven thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand dollars a month, you could end up uh, your loved one could end up in a hellhole. And part of the reason for that is in a related story, and I talk about this in the book quite a bit as well. Um, we used to have bigger extended families and neighborhoods that would kind of come together and allow communities to 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 come together and band together and care for their loved ones. It's it's not easy work, as you know, taking your own. Uh, mother into your own house to care for her, um, especially if you have a job, especially if you have other you know things you need to do. Um, that's 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 a privilege to be able to do that. But but we've lost a lot of the underlying infrastructure, if you will, um, to be able to do those kinds of things. I mean, it's it's so interesting. Um, a few years ago, when I was house hunting and and my wife and I were looking at different houses to see the difference in how older houses were laid out. And how maybe the more modern houses were laid out. You can almost see how the older houses um, were laid out in such a different way that was extended family friendly, as opposed to the ones that are more modern and the, certainly the ones that are being built. Although you can kind of see it changing now as the country gets older. There's more focus maybe on a, like a mother daughter having a place for your parents, and that's all to the good. But we need to focus more on those things because it's not just about. Though I think it is about you know whether Medicaid or Medicare reimburses for what kind of care and those sorts of things that, and those policy issues are important, but there's a, there's a major question to ask too. Are we going to live the lives, um, uh, live lives in, in solidarity with our elderly, with our elderly family, with our elderly loved ones, with our elderly extended family. And I, I, I include myself in this as a, as an example, I, I moved out uh, from the Midwest to, to take a job at Fordham in New York city. And my parents are in their early seventies in the Midwest and all three of the kids have moved away. And it's not clear what's going to happen to take care of them. Uh, uh, now, if they were in a less financially secure situation, it would be really, really problematic. Um, but but it's still problematic because one of us should be there to help take care of them. This is a this is a fundamental duty we have, an unchosen duty, but a fundamental duty we have to our parents and to our relatives. And so, I think there's a real question, and maybe the churches, the Christian churches, especially in this country, can contribute to this. Part of the, what we need to do to uphold fundamental human equality is rethink the very structures and choices we make in our lives. And, and I think that as something as simple as staying around, not taking the best job available to you, but staying around to be around to care for your loved ones may be a simple yet essential part of what, what the response should be. I also think that for uh, people who need care, one of the great gifts they can give is to receive it graciously. That's right. So a big, that's a, that's well said because a huge part of the problem here. And I love my parents very much. Are, are people like my parents who told all three of us, you know, don't worry about us. You know, um, we don't want to be a burden on you. They didn't say it quite like that, but that was the very clear message that, um, was sent to all three of us and is sent to, you know, millions of children all over the world, but especially in the rich consumerist West is that, your family ties, your community ties, your neighborhood ties are not nearly as important as your self-actualization. 
and it's time for you to go spread your wings and fly and not let us hold you back. And there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for pursuing your dreams, but there's also something to be said for making family a priority and making community a priority. And ironically, maybe right. I, I'll finish with this. The Maybe there's something to be said for the kind of thing we're doing now, like a kind of virtual conversation. I would prefer to be having this conversation with you in a bar over a drink. But the fact that we can do it this way maybe would allow some of us the freedom in the future uh, to have important conversations, pursue our goals, uh, but do it in a way that honors our local communities as well. Yeah, and the, and technology, I think, has that that potential. We're getting close to the end, but I, I would be remiss if we didn't get into the threats faced by dementia patients because your book has a thrust. It, it shows a um, step-by-step process in which first starting with uh, the people declared dead by neurological criteria, well, they're dead, so they're not. They're no longer human. Then it went to uh, the unborn. Then it went to people diagnosed like uh, Terry Schiavo as being unconscious. Then it went to the profoundly disabled and uh, like Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans, and now the people with dementia uh, who are losing these capacities that supposedly give value instead of being human are targeted. And and there's no question about it. If you take a look at at in the Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, people with dementia are actually euthanized. They are lethally injected after they become incompetent if they wrote an advanced directive saying, when I become incompetent, kill me. And there was this one case in in, uh, the Netherlands that is just one of the most horrific I've ever heard of where a a woman so diagnosed said that in an advanced directive, but she made it very clear. She said, let me decide the time. And uh, after she became incompetent, the doctor has testified in court basically three times I asked her if now was the time and three times she said no. So the doctor said, well, yes, the time has come, drugged this woman's coffee so she would fall asleep, was in the process of lethally injecting her when the woman woke up and started to struggle to stay alive. The doctor had the family hold the woman down who was trying to keep from being killed and dispatched her. And Nothing happened to that doctor. Um, At first, the uh, euthanasia authorities said that was right. There was a hue and cry internationally. So they they put the doctor on trial not to punish her, but to uh, set a precedent, as they always do in the Netherlands. The uh, judge found her not guilty or praised her. And then the parliament changed the law that used to say you can't drug euthanasia patients and it's up to the euthanasia patient to decide the time. They changed the law to actually permit the very things that that doctor had done. And so, as you can see, guidelines don't protect against abuse because the woman with euthanasia was deemed as not having a life worth living. I did not know the part about the struggle. I knew about that case and wrote about it in the book, but I didn't know the part about the struggle. I wish I had known otherwise the story would have been more true and that much more dramatic and also show what a depraved uh, view of the human person is at play. It, it's, it's just awful. And then you have people uh, in bioethicists in this country promoting and, and euthanasia groups, what's called VSED, voluntary stop eating and drinking, where there are actual lessons on the internet teaching elderly people who are quote tired of life how to starve themselves to death. I know I followed your work on that um, intensely and, and, have, and have used your work on these questions as a way of setting up what is happening here. Because what's happening here is a precursor to just straight up no chaser euthanasia. So once we, once we say it's okay to starve people, it's okay to over-medicate them and just let them essentially wither away and die, um, you know, eventually someone's going to come along and say, well, we're really already aiming at death. Why would we do it in this inhumane way? Let's do it in a more humane way. Let's just give them the overdose of pain medication and end it. So we're very clearly on this path. We're very clearly on this trajectory. And, um, you know, one of the things that's operative here is, of course, the fundamental judgment about the life of someone with dementia. I, I use the analogy of Odysseus, the story of Odysseus and the sirens, right? Odysseus says, with regard to that case in the Netherlands. Odysseus says, now I'm going to hear the sirens. You have to tie me down and make sure I don't follow them to my death, right? And if I tell you after I hear the siren songs to untie me, you have to not listen to me because I won't be myself. 
and and that story is is a good one, right? Because it says you know you got to respect the person when they're when they're acting according to their will and not when they're under the the uh, the influence of the sirens. Now, how does that fit into the Netherlands case? Well, what's implicitly being done there is saying this person with dementia who says I don't want to die is essentially being analogized to Odysseus under the uh, influence of the sirens. Totally irrational, has lost their sense of what's you know, reasonable and valuable because we know that of course somebody who is in the dementia state, if they weren't, if they if, did, if they had their full faculties, would would want to die. That's what they would have wanted. Uh, but instead, we we take the Odysseus, or in this case, the the woman before she uh, developed to this state, and we say, you know, we'll take her over the person in front of us, telling us, "I want to live." We will literally hold her down and kill her. But but that judgment, that fundamental judgment about the life of someone with dementia, is a big part. Is a central part of what I'm arguing in the book and finish the book saying, like, what do we think about grandma? What do we think about mom who is, who is, who has reached this stage, who is not rational or self-aware like the rest of us? Do we consider them our equals? If so, we need to take dramatic steps right now um, to defend them. If we don't, they're going to be the next uh, population to fall as fundamentally unequal compared to the rest of us. There's no question. And you end the book uh, with some suggestions on uh, how to better care for people uh, as human beings. Uh, and, and there's a great deal of love uh, attached to that. And I, I was struck by how uh, a lot of what you write is already available in, in Catholic healthcare, particularly with nuns, as you mentioned. Uh, there are orders of nuns who are dedicated to caring for people who are elderly and so forth. And yet, Catholic healthcare in the United States today is under a massive and increasing attack by uh, the ACLU and by secular government because they won't provide certain services such as abortion or assisted suicide or transgender transition interventions. And <laughs> it's almost like, well, we don't want you to provide that kind of good care if you won't, won't also do the things that we want. And there's a real cultural hegemony and imperialism, I think, uh, afoot in this country. Absolutely. And that's one reason why, you know, it, it, people in my academic circles often dismiss the fight for religious liberty as being a kind of homophobia or kind of reactionary to reactionary approach to kind of sex and gender or something like that. And I guess I can understand in some ways where that comes from, because some of it does rely on those or is related to those issues, even though I disagree with that judgment. However, what you just described is a huge, huge example that we need to give when we, when we push back on that and say, it's not just about those issues. It's about whether there is going to be the kind of religious and theologically based, theologically grounded, religiously grounded healthcare around at all. And if there isn't uh, that, Wesley, I believe that if, if, the, if the dialogue that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast fails, in the book I say, let's try it for a decade or so, let's try our best to reason with the surrounding culture and use dialogical um, methodologies to, to, to try to rekindle fundamental human equality. If we fail, it's going to be just the churches that are left. And if we don't have our hospitals, if we don't have our religious orders who are doing this, if we don't have our healthcare infrastructure, we're just going to have to build it over again. And maybe we will. But right now, one out of every seven people that goes to the hospital in the United States goes to a Catholic hospital. That's a tremendous amount of infrastructure that's available it to, to, a, to try to address what is going to be a dementia crisis, already is a dementia crisis, but will get even worse, double in the next generation. Um, we have to stand up for religious freedom and religious liberty precisely so that these institutions are still around to address the problem. And the secularists have a stake in that as well as people of faith. That's right. That's right. Right. What's next for Charles Camosa? You've uh, you stepped into the third rail of uh, culture these days, and, and what are your plans for uh, going forward? Well, my next project, I, I actually um, looked around and I saw there really wasn't a book for bioethics uh, for nurses, and specifically for Christian nurses. So a former student of mine, actually, back when I was doing my PhD at Notre Dame, I taught at IU South Bend a, a, a bioethics course for nurses. And a student of mine um, in that course eventually ended up being a professor of nursing. And so she and I decided to write a book together, um, essentially Christian bioethics for nurses. And we just 
we're about ready to finish that manuscript. And a big part, frankly, of what, what, what drove me to, to become interested in that is precisely these kinds of questions. Nurses are at the front lines. They were the front lines of the pandemic. They're going to be on the front lines of this kind of medical emergency as well. And, and they're really, their religious freedom is under siege in a particular kind of way. And their nurses are much more religious, frankly, than physicians are. Physicians are pretty religious um, in the United States, um, but, but nurses are very religious and, and in a good way, in a way that, that often defends fundamental human equality. And so we need a specific focus, I think, on nurses as just period, full stop, but especially to to address some of the issues we talked about at this podcast. I think that's a very important point. And it also raises the issue that sometimes I forget to bring up the reasons why most medicine today in the, in this country remain moral are the people in the trenches who work in healthcare. It's not because of the people in the universities. It's the people, the doctors, the nurses, the orderlies, the occupational therapists, the pharmacists who are in there helping vulnerable, sick, disabled people every day. And I think we have to remember that as we go forward. Absolutely. You could have gone another hour just on, on your book. And I want to remind readers that the name of the book is Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality. And the good news is the book is not a deep tome that's 400 pages. It's a, it, it's a, uh, it's a lighter touch uh, that, that anyone can read, and it is very approachable. And I thank you for writing it, Charles. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Let's do this again. I would love it, and I'd love to have that beer sometime if we're ever in the same city. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.